Welcome to the Minimum Viable Podcast, a project of the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. Our mission is to inspire, connect, and empower people in order to promote a culture of innovation in the U.S. national security community. You can learn more about DEF and get involved at DEF.org. That's D-E-F dot O-R-G. We look forward to your ideas and are excited to connect you with other doers working on hard problems. Hey, welcome everyone to the NSCAI Roundtable. We're really excited for this event and have been looking forward to it for a long time. So glad that the day has come. And um, uh, as you know, NSCAI just submitted its final report to Congress. And um, just speaking for myself, I think this is going to be looked back on as a very important and historic body of work. So it's a uh, it's really an honor and a privilege to join uh, Justin and Courtney today. And with that, I'll let Mike uh, kick us off. All right, thanks, Adam. And uh, of note, I'm gonna out you that you're not physically in Boston at the moment, but Adam is our, our Boston Agora lead, leading the, the local community there. And uh, he, he put together a DefX uh, last year on AI um, that I, I almost had tickets to fly to Boston for, but it, the event was, I think, early April, and uh, at the you know what felt like the last minute, we had to uh, go virtual. Um, but it's it's neat kind of to be here a year later, um, and I thank you know Adam and the and the Boston Agora for for being an active community and for um, hosting a lot of these really important discussions. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I'm uh, Michael Madrid, and uh, serving as the executive director of DEF. Uh, I'm here in the DC area. Um, and with the cherry blossoms and the seasonal allergies galore. Uh, and uh, I also am very excited um, with the report having been uh, submitted last month, just in March, um, Justin had reached out uh, and offered uh, to do this event with DEF. And it was an instant yes, for sure. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll introduce our two guests uh, for the evening. Um, first, Courtney Barno is a director uh, for research and analysis for the NSC AI, the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Uh, focused on the application of AI for national security missions. Uh, prior to joining NSCAI, Courtney was on the staff of the Defense Innovation Board uh, and worked on software acquisition and development issues. Uh, and if you've been around DEF for long, we definitely have a lot of overlap with the DIV and the DIV's work. Um, the, the swap study on software acquisition was a hot topic just two weeks ago when we had a DEFX on software. Um, so lots of circles that we've, we've run in together. Uh, and prior to kicking this off, we're recruiting Courtney to to help on the ground here in DC with our local Agora. Uh, she's also supported the US Department of State in a number of positions focused on overseas security policy and operations. So um, Courtney, absolute pleasure to have you on. And, uh, and Justin, uh, Justin Lynch served as an active duty army officer before transitioning to the Army National Guard. Uh, and as a Navy person, I have to say beat army. Uh, as a civilian, he served in multiple roles in the national uh, security enterprise and is currently a director of research and analysis at the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. And if you've been around DEF for a while, you also know uh, Justin from lots of circles. Um, you know, just a few years ago, he was serving as uh, the ops team lead uh, on the, the national volunteer team uh, and also running the Gutenberg program. Uh, so Justin, you know, longtime member of the tribe and, and champion of DEF, uh, great to have you both here. So with introductions out of the way. Uh, first off, let's just start with the experience of the commission itself. Congratulations, the report is, the report is done. It's very short. Um, the audience can probably just read it while we're talking here. It's, you know, only 200 some, 300 pages long. Um, but I will say, and we'll drop the link in the chat. Um, it's very simple. It's nscai.gov uh, if you're listening to this later. Um, I also really appreciate there's an interactive version of the report online, uh, which is very, you know, engaging and, and visually uh, appealing. And then, of course, you can also download a PDF summary of the report. Uh, so uh, with that being said, the audience, if you're here live with us, you can ask uh, your questions in the Q&A, and we'll try to integrate those into our discussion. Um, but to Justin and Courtney, what's the, what's the prevailing emotion right now? Is it a sense of relief, um, finally, finally having delivered the report? Courtney, do you want to go first? Or? Yeah, sure. I can kick it off. Okay. Um, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll start and say that um, 
I can't imagine my relief is 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 nearly as much as uh, as Justin's because I I had not had the pleasure of serving the full two years on the commission staff unlike Justin who really really helped them get it off the ground from the beginning but but I can say from the year I've been with the commission staff it is um, uh, it's a it's a monumental document um, due in large part to the the strategic leadership and guidance of the the fantastic commissioners that we have and you know, really just the expertise that they have at this intersection of, of technology and government and policy. Um, and, and they were really, really critical in driving, driving the research direction. Um, you know, I, I think the feeling on staff is that we are, we're tremendously energized by the positive reception that this is getting both from the general public, from industry, and of course our, our partners in the agencies and on the Hill, there seems to be kind of a collective, um, mood that the time for action is now. We're ready to start making some big muscle movements in terms of, of investments um, as a country to make sure that we can compete going forward. And I think, you know, um, just speaking for myself personally, you know, it's been a, just an absolute um, privilege to be a part of the part of the process. Yeah, so I completely agree with everything Courtney just said. Um, the, the big thing, I think one sentiment is um, there's a bit of relief that we have the final report out, but also a sense that our work is nowhere near done. Uh, Congress is generous enough to extend us through the end of the fiscal year. So we have our, our budget until uh, the, the very end of September. So we'll have staff working with uh, Congress, working with the executive branch and whoever else uh, we can and, and should to uh, try to move towards implementation. Uh, so the, the joke was um, one of those days off after the, you know, the final report, uh, because we, we've kept on working really hard to make sure that we're uh, continuing to work with the commissioners to make sure that they're engaged, doing staff level engagements uh, where that's the best solution and, and really push those ideas forward a lot. So um, we, we very much from the beginning had the sense that dropping a report and walking away from it wasn't what our, our country needs right now. So we're, we're into that, that part of our, that phase of the operation, so to speak, now. I love that. And I hope I hope we internalize that as a community, that idea that it's not not enough to just drop the to have the discussion to drop the idea, uh, but that you know taking the ideas into action and the implementation phase is is actually um, well I won't say where you know where where most of the work is because you've done an amazing amount of work over two years, but you know, you can't have one without the other. You need you need both. So I was going to ask, you know, what the kind of the next steps are for the commission, but I think you you already summed that up really well. Um, excited to hear about the rest of the work in remaining this fiscal year. Um, thinking thinking back then uh, to go ahead. Yeah, the the I probably should have said this already, but the the one metric that I there, there's two metrics that I think are really important for assessing what we're doing right now that and then we keep in our our head constantly. One is a report is good. We need to figure out how many of our recommendations are going to be implemented from that. So that, that's a huge piece. The, the second piece is, uh, and this is one of our commissioners said this and it has just scared the daylights out of me since then. The biggest way we can measure our success is who implements more of our recommendations, the United States government or the Chinese government. Uh, and that, that's something that uh, doesn't keep me awake at night but kind of drives the way we're working with Congress and the executive branch on a regular basis. If I can, I'll just add before we, we move on to is I, I think that's a critical point that Justin just made in it's something that's run through our work since the very beginning, Justin alluded to this, but, you know, when we when we were originally chartered and stood up, it was very, it was a very early decision that our commissioners made to say, hey, we're going to take an iterative approach to trying to figure out what the right recommendations are to make here and to release those on a quarterly basis so that we don't just drop a final report at the end as a as a static document, but also that, you know, we had two years to conduct this research and analysis and it was, you know, a robust amount of, of analysis that went into it, no doubt, but but there were things that we we found out and recommendations we knew we could make to start getting the right action, the right investments made in certain places earlier on. And so we've been privileged, I think, to work with, with the Hill um, uh, quite often over the course of the past uh, year in particular, and have had a number of recommendations that the commission has already made implemented in the in the National Defense Authorization Act for this previous year and um, additional legislation. Well, any, anybody who, who cares about entre entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship will love the iterative 
approach there. And it, of course, it makes sense, right? There's there's no point in waiting until uh, spring 2021, you know, if you know there's something that the the department or the country can can go to work on immediately. Um, so in that sense, this is a wonderful model, hopefully, for future uh, commissions and future you know future projects and and types of work that we undertake. Um, so that's that's great to hear. Um, I was going to ask uh, maybe for uh, a highlight uh, and also interestingly for maybe a low point um, of your time on the commission, maybe a, a challenge or a frustration. Um, and then of course also uh, uh, highlight something that, that really stands out to you over the last year or two years. Um, and Courtney, I'll go to you first. Sure. I, you know, I'll say, I think my, my, my high point and my low point uh, is somewhat dovetail. Um, I think the high point in in these commissions and being part of part of these organizations that really do a deep dive look at uh, what's going right, what's going not so right, what can be improved upon in our, our federal government um, apparatus, how we interact with industry, how we think about technology broadly, is that um, uh, in particular, uh, if you look at the Department of Defense, you get exposed to just in a number of of men and women across the enterprise that are just extremely committed to the type of progress that needs to occur, um, to the modernization priorities, to you know taking risks, um, to really pushing the envelope, and, and those that have a real understanding of, of the competition we're in and what needs to change. Um, and so that's, that's just a very um, energizing thing to be exposed to. I think the low point is uh, the challenge that comes with that. Is that often, you know, uh, on these commissions, you are in a position, um, you know, as as many of our commissioners and the staff found themselves in, where you have to push these individuals that are already doing doing their best work and really trying to embrace risk and push the envelope to do more, right? To to go further, faster, um, and really try to try to accelerate progress. And that's not a a comfortable message to deliver, you know. And that's that's one of the things you see in the in the introductory letter to our report is this is this is an uncomfortable message that uh, the commission put forward is that uh, we're not prepared for the for the AI era right despite some of the best efforts of, of the men and women in the armed services and, and other places. On that note, and we'll probably get around to this a little bit more as we dive deeper into the to the work, but one of the things that stood out for me in in reading the report and just kind of being in this space for a couple of years now is, is uh, touching on what you just said where my feeling is that the, the level of action and urgency is not anywhere near where it needs to be. And I would say for a lot of the broader public, uh, forget about urgency, there's not even awareness kind of of the issue. The, the average person on the street is not gonna even know that this kind of um, you know big strategic situation is going on. Um, any feelings on that? You know, can we kind of drum up the, the energy needed to, to create sufficient action or just any thoughts on that would be, would be interesting? Yeah, I, I think it's changing quickly. I, I would definitely have agreed with you uh, two years ago when we started. Um, and I don't exactly disagree, um, but I don't agree quite either. I, I think the average American is, mu is much more and aligned with the idea that well, we're starting to get into a more competitive environment internationally now. Um, things like Xinjiang are much more common knowledge today than they were two years ago when we started and all these associated issues going on uh, with that. And, uh, and I think it's become a very bipartisan issue as well, where you see both parties are saying we're in an international competition and we need to address both international components of that and domestic components of that. There's disagreement, of course, as, as there should be in you know, a, a democratic government. Um, there, there's disagreement about what exactly the solution should be, but the idea that we need to move, we need to move quickly, we need to move aggressively is, is really building a lot. And I think that's not just an inside the beltway circle, which is something that it used to be, but moving across um, America as well. In terms of the AI specificity of it, um, that's growing as well, I believe. Um, not as strongly as the, the China competition uh, piece of it, but it, it's certainly getting a lot more uh, activity now. And, and if you look about, at the amount of legislation about research and development, about artificial intelligence, about STEM education that's uh, been proposed and that's moved in the last two to three years, 
it's, it's a huge increase over where we were just a short time ago. So uh, while wishing we were a bit more active, I'm actually pretty optimistic that we're starting to head in the right direction. Good, that makes me feel good to hear you say that. Um, so next, I thought we would just kind of uh, give you a chance to give a general overview um, of your work and the recommendations. Yeah, um, Justin, do you want to kick it off or I can? Completely up to you. Yeah, I, I can I can kick us off. So one of the ways to, to look at the report, uh, you know, there, there's 16 chapters uh, and that cover a lot of issues. I'll, I'll give a quick breakdown on how we actually built out the report. It's 756 pages. Um, we don't expect anybody to read 756 pages except for Mike Madrid, who we know will read every one of them, including the endnotes. But, uh, uh, it's, it's broken out in a way that's supposed to be useful for any audience. So we have an executive summary up front along with a couple of introduction letters. And that's that short can be read by anybody that's interested in AI, uh, anybody that's interested in national security. And then following that, we have a main body that's about 120 pages. And the main body so it's broken out into those 16 chapters uh, that I talked about. And so what you can do from there is pick your issue. Um, uh, my, my focus area for, for the staff was on uh, talent workforce. So there's there's two chapters that focus on that. So if I was in, in a, you know, had the same focus somewhere else, I could look at those two chapters and it would be great if you read all 16, but, you know, reading those two could be helpful. Um, and that's the, the overview of the framing of the issue and then an overview of like, you know, the one or two paragraph description of the recommendations. And then if you, you have three recommendations from each of those chapters that you want to go deep on, we have the blueprints for action that go into specific executive and legislative branch uh, uh, actions that need to accompany those recommendations. And then at the end of it, for everything that we have a legislative branch recommendation, we also have draft legislative language as, as well. So the idea being that not to have so everyone read the full 750 pages, uh, but I have had uh, several people email me and text me to uh, say that how long you know it should it take and make fun of me for having a 750 page report, but to um, make sure that it's broken out in a way that you can get exactly the amount of detail you need on any one topic, and then be able to take that into implementation quickly, uh, whether or not you're in the executive branch or in the legislative branch. Uh, in terms of breaking out uh, the recommendations into their, their components, the way we have it broken out um, that's easiest to summarize is into four buckets, having the right leadership, talent, hardware, uh, level of innovation, and sorry, the fifth bucket, partnerships to uh, propel our nation into the AI future. And uh, I can, uh, you know, happily talk about the, the talent and horror piece. Courtney, do you want to lead us off with the, the leadership piece of it? I know you did a lot of work on that. Sure, no problem. So the one of the big conclusions that the the commission um, reached is that the U.S. is not yet organized, resource, or really the, set the strategies that are necessary to compete in in this um, this broader competition uh, with China. Our, our government and society are, are a long way from AI ready, which is why you see the, the AI ready by 2025 um, challenge or goal in the report. And, and one of the things that our commissioners will often say is that 50% of AI adoption in big organizations is about changing culture in organization, uh, not technology. And so really only, only leadership can provide the level of, of urgency and adoption that needs to occur. And so the commission makes a number of recommendations, both at the national level and at the agency level to really create the right leadership and, and strategy structures. Um, so, so one of the first, I'll, I'll just highlight two, one of the first uh, in the predominant leadership uh, structures that we recommend is the creation of a, of a technology competitiveness council within the White House. Um, and the purpose of this council would really be to, to help us set a, a national strategy for, for emerging technologies and figure out how to, to marshal the, the different agencies, our interaction with industry, et cetera, really towards a, a competitive posture. And the commission really modeled this after both the creation of the, the National Security Council um, after World War II heading into to the Cold War and the, the National Economic Council. And so it was a similar conclusion here. We need a dedicated focus on this and it should be uh, it should be driven by by the White House. Um, in the mirror recommendation, you would say in the, the Department of Defense is the creation of a, a leadership 
committee, a tri-chair steering committee on emerging technology that would similarly drive uh, resourcing and prioritization on emerging technology, specifically within the Department of Defense and in coordination with the intelligence community. So those are two examples of really how we get after this, this uh, need for top-down leadership um, within the, the government broadly and within the Department of Defense. Um, did you wanna talk more about talent, Justin? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things I, I heard, I think at DEF first was that when it, if you wanna boil it down to talent, every problem that you run into is it can be a talent problem. Either you, you don't have the right people you're not training them the right way, or you're not giving the people that you have the right resources. And kind of in, in that spirit, we think that talent is it the one of the linchpins of our ability to be AI ready by 2025, both for the Department of Defense and the IC, the broader federal government, and then to actually be able to drive our economy, security, and improve our quality of living um, nationally as well. So there's a couple of key things for talent that we want, like to highlight. One is really building out our technical workforce in government and uh, I, I can go on for the next 45 minutes about this easily, so I'll be brief, but we need to do a better job of uh, organizing the talent that we have because where they are is just as important as their level of ability, where, where they are, not just geographically, but inside the organization. We need to do a better job of recruiting people through pipelines from universities, through opportunities to serve part-time in government, uh, which are National Reserve Digital Core addresses. We need to do a better job of building the workforce that we already have uh, through upskilling people who, who work there already, and then also through establishing a digital service academy, um, which is a proposal that's had a surprising amount of interest. And we need to do a better job employing the technical talent we have. Uh, Mike and I talked about this a little bit earlier, but one of the issues that we see is that if, if you're a young person or anyone who is a computer scientist, you know, works in AI, data science, in any number of fields, and you want to improve society, you want to contribute, then you can either look at government and say, can I do cutting edge research, can I implement the best technology, have access to the best tools and do just really great work to help society and government? Or is the private sector the best place to do that? We wanna make a better argument uh, that government's a great place to do that as well. And to do that, we need to employ technologists more effectively. Um, that, that means tool access to tools, but it also means better management. Uh, and the core of that for our recommendations is having uh, AI, data science and software career fields. Uh, then we also need to look at our our national talent pool uh, through some immigration reform and then also through investing in STEM education at the graduate, undergraduate, and K through 12 levels. Um, I want to call out there's this line in I think the executive summary that the talent deficit in DOD and the IC, the intelligence community, represents the greatest impediment to being AI ready by 2025. Um, so I love the, the talent direction we're going with this. Um, and Courtney, I love the culture uh, comment as well. That's gonna be one of my outtakes from tonight. Um, let me ask, let me pose a question because you just you just went there, Justin, from, uh, from someone in the audience. They submitted this ahead of time, actually, uh, that much of the traditional education system, both K through 12 and college, remains largely unchanged since the, the committee of 10 outlined key subjects in the late 19th century. And so the question was, how can the US move away from that industrial age model uh, to prepare the next generation of digital natives and national security professionals for the innovation era? Yeah, so that's a, a, a really great question. And once again, I'm gonna have to like restrain myself from going on for 30 minutes because I'm so excited about this topic. But the, the very quick answer is that we need to teach people going through our K through 12 system right now uh, how to be better problem solvers using information systems. Um, which when, in, when you start scoping it down from just being better problem solvers and saying you, using information processing agents, uh, partnering with a, a machine, then you can get into the more specific parts of the curriculum. So the way that we, we looked at it was saying we need to improve computational thinking, education and statistics. Um, since most of our machine learning models uh, will have outputs that are uh, phrased statistically if you, if you look at it uh, a little bit closely. And then also computational thinking to understand what is the problem that I'm trying to solve? How can I break it part down into its component pieces? How can I uh, push some of that problem solving to a model, to some sort of information processing agent that can do heavy lifting for me so I can scale the, the way I'm solving problems and the way I'm making decisions effectively. And that allows you to be more productive, which if you can have a lot of people being more productive, you get into benefits to the country and benefits to your national security. So that's, that's the quick version, quick-ish. 
wish we had unlimited time and I could just let you keep going. Um, you mentioned the uh, you mentioned the Digital Service Academy, which we've seen written about uh, a variety of times and in the report, of course, and um, and the National Digital Reserve Corps. Uh, and I'm wondering if um, either of you could unpack those two concepts for for us real quick. Right. So I'll start on the Digital Service Academy proposal. So right off the bat, I should mention that this has received um, a really great amount of support on the Hill. And uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that we're actually going to see legislation soon. Uh, a recent House Armed Services Committee uh, hearing, they actually announced that they plan to drop legislation to initiate the process for establishing a Digital Service Academy. So uh, what we wound up doing is, is looking at our government workforce and saying, where do we see major deficits in our ability to produce tech talent? And saying that the military service academies and ROTC produce a lot of tech talent already. They're not being used very well, but that's a different issue. It's not a production issue. And so, so civil servants, we have a lot of issues recruiting people into the civil service um, and it's very expensive to recruit people. So we have scholarship for service that works really well already, but it's not hitting the scale that we need. Um, we have the competitive service that doesn't work as well as, as it should. Uh, needs to be reformed. But even if those are reformed and, and they increase their throughput, we don't think that they're going to hit the scale that we need. And they're not going to serve as an engine for change, which is the phrase we're using. If you want to change the way the officer corps views a problem, one of the ways you can do it uh, to, to affect long-term change is change what's taught at the military service academies. Um, and uh, so we said is there's a gap in the way we produce civil servants, especially technologists. Um, and what came out of that was a proposal for a digital service academy that would be a, a highly technical uh, curriculum with uh, you know, a four-year degree at the end. Uh, there'd be some focus in humanities as well, things like law, history, uh, ethics, uh, enough so someone would be an effective civil servant uh, upon graduating. Uh, and then they would go on to serve for five years as a civil servant in government. Oh, for the National Reserve Digital Corps, sorry, I forgot the second part of that question. Um, so that, that's, that's another area where we looked at uh, the way the government has opportunities to serve and found a gap. And right now, if you wanna, if you're a technologist and you wanna contribute to government, you can go on a rotational program. There's a number of those that are good. Those, those can and should expand. You can just go become a, a civil servant. Uh, that's a little bit of a messy process with the competitive service, but we have recommendations for how to reform that as well. Um, or you can be a military reservist, but if you wanna serve part-time, in government as a civilian, there's not really a great way to do that um, that's easy to get into. So our recommendation was to create a part-time reserve uh, for the government, uh, much like the military reserve, but for civilian technologists, a National Reserve Digital Corps. Um, they would serve as SGEs. Um, OMB would have full-time employees that managed their teams. They're responsible for recruiting uh, and forming their team. So if I was an OMB employee team leader, I would say, I wanna have people that are working on NLP form my team that way. I wanna have a diverse set of skills, but we all would be based out of Boston. I could form my team that way. There's a lot of ways you could do it, uh, but we'd leave that pretty independent for the team lead, almost uh, more like a startup model. Uh, so they could figure out what value add and they'd work with their government clients to uh, help solve government problems uh, 38 days a year. Perfect, those, those were great. Uh, those were great explanations. And I, I know everybody listening is having have all sorts of ideas, as uh, all sorts of ideas and, and follow-up questions probably. Um, but let me let me take another audience question and work it in, and, and I'll go to Courtney for this because it's back to that uh, in response to that culture comment you made earlier. Um, and you know, a lot of people, the questions recognizing that a lot of people have versions of AI uh, already, you know, from Roombas to to Alexas in their homes. Um, and so the question is, you know, I'm not convinced it is a culture issue. It's interesting that you put culture so high. Um, when, when there aren't necessarily even a lot of AI capabilities uh, to leverage uh, yet, and do I need to be an AI expert to buy an iPhone? So maybe you can speak a little bit more towards, you know, why, uh, why you place culture so high and what about um, the culture you see as necessary, you know, to be AI ready, what, what kind of um, incentives or behaviors or value judgments, you know, you think you need, we need to see from senior leadership through, you know, everybody serving. Yeah, so I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll start on how I'm defining culture personally, right? And you won't you won't see this in the report, but but it may be helpful to to explain my thinking at least. So so if we're looking at at the Department of Defense in particular, right? I think what is innate in culture there are these organizational 
structures, these incentives, um, these processes that govern the way that we do business. And where we really want to get to is, is an enabling uh, environment, right? We want to get to an environment that both in terms of the processes you have to work through to, to deliver capabilities, the resources you have access to to develop capabilities, the leadership that is overseeing and supporting you in the development of those capabilities, all understand the, um, the importance of AI, understand the attributes of it as a technology and are setting up the, the structures in place to, to enable folks to do what they need to do to deliver that type of technology. And so what we really mean by culture is, is this kind of broader reorientation of, of how we do business to support the, the speed, the flexibility, the iterative development cycles that are really, really inherent to AI. And so in the report, we make a number of recommendations around what that means for how we need to um, adapt the acquisition system, right? Both in terms of training our, our acquisition workforce, in terms of how we look at budget. Uh, we also make a variety of recommendations around where we need to have um, AI talent and development talent, right? Making sure that's co-located with with mission owners and ensuring that we we push that out to the forward edge to the extent that we can, so that we're solving um, operational challenges where they matter most. Um, I'll pause there and hope hope that was a, a little bit more color. <laughs> so one thing that that struck me in reading the report was that this is a very very ambitious project and really it's more like a portfolio of, of national projects, but it almost struck me as kind of a, a new deal uh, level of kind of investment and um, initiative. And I guess the first part of my question is does, for both of you, does that analogy ring true or would you kind of frame it in a different way? And, um, you know, we're, we're coming out of a, a recession and so there's obviously going to be a lot of investment in the U.S. economy to develop the capabilities we need. There is a, uh, I would guess, a balancing act between the need for, um, you know, kind of expertise and and speed in the in the contractors and companies that are going to execute on a lot of this vision. Um, but it, you know, if we have one contractor that manages, you know, a huge uh, portion, you know, then the the benefits of this work won't necessarily um, hit as broad of a, of a group of companies and individuals in the, in the US economy as it could. So I was just curious, the second part of the question is, I'm just curious, how did the commission think about the balance between kind of going with a, a trusted uh, a vendor versus how do we kind of use this investment to kind of invigorate the economy? Thank you. Yeah, I can, I can it's a good question, Adam. I can jump in and add, a little bit on on the the innovation piece and and ensuring that you know we're really diversifying the the companies that are that are participating in in this space right um, and so one of the things that you'll you'll see in the final report is is really that you know one we we do believe the United States is and remains the the world's leader in AI innovation and primary reason for that is because we're driven by this dynamic entrepreneurial private sector in in our academic research institutions right um, but but we've identified that that there are weaknesses in this in this underlying system. Um, and so one of the points that you'll see us make in our report is this, this growing divide between the haves and the haves not, have nots in AI R&D. Um, and so one of the things that we say is that we, we acknowledge that the developments in the last five years have really increased access to baseline like machine learning tools and cloud-based computation um, and have driven progress on the cutting edge of many important AI approaches, but it's requiring significant amounts of data and, and computing power and the ex expensive infrastructure and substantial hardware and software engineering. And so what that's doing is it's reducing the number of, of companies that, that can play in this space. Um, and so we believe the federal government uh, has to take action to, to increase the diversity, competitiveness, and accessibility of the country's AI innovation environment. So, so one of the recommendations we make in this area is to create a national AI research infrastructure. And the purpose of this would be to provide researchers beyond just those big industry players that I was talking about and elite uh, universities, the ability to really pursue progress on the cutting edge 
of AI. Um, and the national infrastructure would encompass what we're calling a, a national AI research resource. And, and the purpose of that would really be to provide subsidized access to compute co-located with, with data uh, sets in domain-specific AI R&D testbeds and really democratizing access to the building blocks of AI to really serve as a catalyst to, to start diversifying um, this space. So I'll, I'll pause there and see if, Justin, is there anything else you want to add on this point? Yeah, I, I would be cautious about um, framing it as a, a short-term versus long-term issue. Um, I mean, there, there are ways to invest only in short-term uh, results on this, but especially when you start getting into infrastructure, like Courtney mentioned, and trying to make sure that our infrastructure is smarter. Uh, we, get, we get into long-term benefits, both in the services that will be delivered to, to American citizens or the American population, and then also in the time it takes to build all of those things and the investments that that creates is the, the benefit for having jobs for people who are working in these fields, I think is actually going to be have, have a significant carry-on. Um, one of the, the uh, statistics we've heard recently, it's not in our final report, is that there isn't an American city, uh, city that's in the top 10 smartest cities in the world. Uh, and I'm talking about the infrastructure. And there's only one American city that's in the top 30. Um, so if we want to be the world's leaders for technology, that's one of the areas that we can look at in terms of infrastructure. But um, that, like I said, that's getting a little bit away from the final report. But uh, when we start looking at how we're going to have a workforce that can do some of the things we're talking about, that does require longer term investments. And some of that's gonna be through uh, K through 12 education. Some of that's gonna be an undergraduate and graduate level education um, to build out the workforce. And then some of that's gonna be through immigration reform as well. Um, because it, if you wanna get the, the quick win for having a lot more AI expertise in the country, data science expertise, software expertise, K through 12 isn't a quick win because I mean, they're, they're kids. It's gonna take some time to get them into the workforce. Uh, I mean, undergraduate can only work if you start investing in freshman in college, it's gonna take a few years from the graduate. Immigration, you can uh, turn things up, that dial up uh, relatively quickly to bring people in. That doesn't mean it's the only solution and should be our only solution. We need to invest in the American people quite a lot too, uh, directly. Um, but I, I think we can get a lot into spreading the benefits of artificial intelligence um, by making workers more productive and by having more and more companies that can implement AI when we use things like what Courtney described for innovation and then when we actually train our population more effectively. I wanted to ask one follow-up question. One of the things that I thought was quite interesting, um, you know, one of the biggest disparities and capabilities between the United States and China is the availability of data sets to train models. And it seems, uh, you know, very unlikely under most scenarios that we're going to have data sets that will rival what they have. They have more people and they're rigging up sensors and cameras to every square inch of the of their cities. And obviously that's not the route we wanna go as a nation, uh, but could you speak to the service that you mentioned in the report that would be stood up to kind of curate and provide those data sets? I thought that was quite interesting. You're referencing the Digital Service Academy or the Digital Core? Uh, I, I couldn't remember the name. I didn't know if it was the Digital uh, Service Core, if it was another. So there's there's two components of that. I, I mentioned earlier training, um, what we call the non-technical workforce, which is admittedly a little bit clumsy, and then the technical workforce. And very briefly, what we want to do is turn data collection and management, and then using making data-informed decision makings into a core competency inside the Department of Defense and IC, um, where the average surface warfare officer understands how to collect and manage data the same way that they understand how to do maintenance. Um, that's not exactly a novel idea. Moving. That sorry, let me let me add a clarifying thing, Justin. Actually, not the training for the workforce, but the training for the actual AI models, because I think it mentions in the report that there's a group that will be responsible for kind of curating large data sets to train models. Is that am I correct on that? Yeah, I think. Courtney, you want to go? I was just going to say, I think I think what you you may be talking about, Adam, is is this. Um, this call we make in the report for the for the release of of public data as as part of that that national AI research resource right and really making these data sets um, available and accessible in a way that that can help um, researchers and and uh, private companies start to train train models um, in a way that's that's productive and really getting them access to that is that what you're uh yeah yeah I just um, without harping on this issue too much, it just the availability of data 
uh, for training AI uh, seems like one of the definite kind of uh, linchpins. And so I was just, I thought that was an interesting um, aspect. Yeah, we make, we make a number uh, of recommendations around you know data curation, hosting, and maintenance uh, of different data sets um, and incentives to make sure the private sector and academia have have that data. Um, and then we also call for fundings of of teams of data engineers and scientists to really unlock public data that's currently being held by the government for future use for the for the AI community. That may be what you're referring to. Thank you. I think what's I think what's what's interesting about that is sort of in this this theme through the report of accelerating innovation at home and domestic innovation. It's this idea that it's it's not just the dollars that the government needs to invest, and it's not just the the contracts and like the literal products, but there are other types of resources and infrastructure um, to put in place at scale to to drive that that innovation engine. So I'm glad we I'm glad we're talking about it because um, that was something that stood out to me as well. Um, let me take a let me take a question from the audience, uh, and it and it dovetails on some of the things Justin was to a moment ago. Um, you know, your term um, options versus the the longer term, um, and I hope I'm not. Uh, I hope here. Oh no. Oh no. I got the your connection is unstable. Am I back? We can hear you now. We lost you for a second. We can hear you. <laughs> our, our podcast guy is going to be super mad at me. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so the the question I think dovetails because you're talking about near term education and and the types of education that that takes uh, longer to take effect. Um, and so the question is about the near term uh, and this idea that um, cultivating young talent is crucial to the long term success uh, of the implementation of AI and autonomy as a whole. Um, but there's still a knowledge issue with senior leadership uh, only understanding the technology, quote unquote, PowerPoint deep. Um, and so Tom, thanks for the great question. How can the DOD include a more technical level of education, for example, into the military service schools, command and staff and or war colleges uh, to address the issue specifically for an inc incoming group of senior leaders in the five to 15 year time frame? Yeah, I, I love that question. Uh, thanks, Tom. Um, so there's, there's two big things that we need to do for that. One is to establish career fields for digital experts. And, and it sounds like you're talking about from a, a uniform perspective. Um, we, we need to have people in the military who are considered a core part of the military that are data scientists, that are artificial intelligence experts and that are software developers, and that have all, much of the same uh, prestige as someone who is combat arms. That, that's the way of the future if we wanna be successful. And then those people need to be able to rise up to very senior leadership positions. And the other piece of it, and I hinted at this a little bit earlier, is the idea that we need to make uh, digital literacy one of the core competencies uh, that junior leaders have, and then make sure that to become a senior leader, you need to gain some experience as well. So our specific recommendation for this is to, it's actually modeled after Goldwater Nichols in the way it incentivized joint uh, competency and joint literacy. So. Uh, Culture is really important. Um, one of the challenges in conversations about culture is actually hard to figure out what lever to pull to change culture. So instead of, of looking at culture for this particular issue, we looked at incentive structures. Said so, what, where have we seen someone uh, legislation changes incentive structures that uh, had a long-term impact on what it meant to become an, be an officer, what it meant to be a senior leader, and uh, what it meant to be competent. And Goldwater Nichols is, of course, the answer for that. And uh, joint competency became a core part of what it means to be a senior leader. So our recommendation is that for uh, the DOD should create uh, critical and non-critical emerging technology billets. And to serve in a, uh, a critical billet, you have to uh, have spent a certain amount of time in non-critical billets and then participated in a fellowship uh, with an emerging tech-focused fellowship a education with industry or earned a certification like a commercial certification on cloud computing, for instance, um, where something that's got enough depth to it that you have to get past that PowerPoint deep level and then have some generalizable skills that you take uh, away from that technology. Um, and to, to really incentivize 
going through that process and becoming emerging tech certified, we'd recommend starting with having uh, those critical billet speed positions that are associated with force structure development, operational concept development, and then general officer and flag officer level commands, tactical commands as well. So want to be a, a two-star commander in any of those services, you need to go get emerging tech uh, certified along the way. I think that would make a huge difference because then your highest performers in your service are going to go learn about emerging technology. That was slightly longer than it should have been, but uh, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about this idea. I think we should also include demotions uh, for anyone who still has an AOL account. <laughs> I okay. mean, I think you're right, right? Incentives as a lever uh, on culture and, and the prestige of, of combat arms, you know, versus the, the skill sets that are uh, going to, uh, that we're talking about tonight that, that are going to uh, affect um, the missions going forward, which I think is a neat um, segue. It was going to be a bit of a hard pivot, uh, but now I've, I've, we've segued it nicely. Um, like I was going to ask Courtney, you know, uh, and I mentioned you're the director for research analysis on the application of AI for national security missions. Um, and there's this call out in the executive summary about um, the intelligence community and uh, intelligence will benefit from AI more than any other national security mission. Um, so obviously, in the setting that we are, um, some limitations to what we can talk about. But um, do you want to expand on that a little bit? Um, maybe maybe there'll be some inspiration uh, for our listeners. You know, with some of the applications that you, you spent the last year looking at. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, what our one of our commissioners, uh, Dr. Schmidt, always says that. Um, the intelligence community is is the number one place that's that's ripe for for the application of, of AI technologies, right? And, and one of the things that that we talk about in the report is that AI-enabled capabilities will will really improve every stage of of the intelligence cycle. You know, from planning and tasking all the way through collection, processing, exploitation, analysis to dissemination, right? And so, just because of of the amount of data. Of, that we're dealing with fused data that we're working with. Um, there's a number of, of work streams that, that intelligence analysts deal with on a day-to-day -day basis that, that can be effectively AI enabled. Um, there's a number of uh, human machine teaming opportunities that we outline in really just accelerating the move towards, towards AI enabled um, analysis and really freeing up you know, human analysts to perform those those higher cognition tasks and really relying on on machines where they're where they're better positioned to do the work, right? Looking for patterns, um, really helping with with that um, that data collection and, and 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 synthesis. Perfect. Um, I'm going. I'm kidding. The internet is unstable. A flashing warning again, um, and something that also seemed to to be really evident there is this idea that um, we'll need AI to to operate um, at speed. There was there was this thread through there about um, the speed of of warfare and decision making. You know, obviously increasing, um, and and the rate at which it's increasing is increasing, um, and this idea that AI would be critical to um, to close those feedback loops and to operate. Uh, at that level, um, let me ask. Uh, let me ask something I've been wondering about, and I meant to ask it earlier. Uh, 2025, uh, and and we started with that, so I'm going to bring us back to that as we're uh, getting close to the hour mark. Um, what what went into selecting that date? Uh, you know, four years away, obviously. Um, and then perhaps the more edgy question: You know, what happens if we fail to to meet that date? Uh, what happens if we fail to uh, be AI ready? Um, to to uh, reach the benchmarks that uh, the commission has set for that date. What does that mean? Maybe maybe I'll jump in first here, uh, Justin. I'm going to leave you the edgy part of the question. Um, allow you to answer what happens if we uh, <laughs> if we miss that date. But but in all seriousness, you know, uh, Mike, it's a great question. It is it is the the central theme of the the report, right? I think 2025 was intentional because because we think it's an aggressive timeline, but it's also really calibrated to, to the significance of, of the undertaking um, that, the, that the US government needs to, needs to take. Um, I, I think we, we thought carefully about this and we received 
feedback, you know, in the early uh, draft stages of the report um, from from some individuals, both in industry and and within the departments and agencies that 2025 isn't fast enough, um, that that frankly, we should be moving faster. Um, The nature of the competition, uh, the consequences of inaction are such that really, you know, we should be saying uh, 2022 or 2023. Right. And I think what we looked at is is again the significance of the different lines of efforts in the work streams uh, that are going to need to go into to achieving this AI readiness. And really it stemmed from, from our analysis of the work that has to be done um, to get to AI ready. And so if you look at the, the DOD in particular, um, one of the things that, that we thought about was the amount of time it's going to take the Department of Defense to, to build the right talent. And, and Justin talks about that at length, and he's touched upon um, much of that this evening. But in addition to the talent, the time it's going to take to to really build and make available the enterprise um, technical infrastructure necessary to to develop and deploy AI applications at speed and scale. You have some of that popping up across the enterprise already, but but the time it's going to take, the significance of the resources and the leadership it's going to take to really knit all of those resources together and make them available as a common fabric that really enables the level of ubiquity that's going to be required is going to take time. So Justin, do you do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the the edgy uh, question as, as Mike put it. Um, so I, I don't, and, and Courtney didn't put it this way, but I don't want to have the impression that our commissioners are saying something like, you know, January 1st, 2025, if we're not AI ready, then, you know, poof, we, we've lost in some way. Um, but it, it's, there is a timeline based off of the fact that we're, we're not in an environment where we're just trying to advance humanity. We're, that's part of what we're recommending. We, we think there are huge, um, there's a huge potential for AI to do that. We're also in a competitive environment. That's why it's the National Security Commission on AI. And we're competing not just with China, but with states like Russia and then certainly some non-state actors as well. And um, AI and parts of this competition that I was just describing is one of the rare issues in national security that the more you look at it increasingly over time, the less safe and the less uh, comfortable you feel. And the more scared you feel about what's going on, and, and that that's really important to, to understand. I think when we, we talk about timelines, is that um, I, I feel significantly less op- optimistic about our ability to compete um, than I did when I didn't know as much. Like I said earlier, there's some improvements, but we, we should be concerned. So uh, that that urgency is important, and there's a few ways to look at it. One is just military power. Um, that that's the the most one-dimensional in some ways, but. Uh, our competitors are modernizing their militaries. They're very aggressive about it. And uh, there, there's a lot of great research out about it. And there's a lot of great testimony that recently came out on the Hill about why that might be um, in terms of what's going on in the Pacific right now and, and what's going on in misinformation, disinformation, how it affects political discourse. Being unprepared to deal with those, uh, even on a timeline that's as close as 2025, is bad just from a purely military standpoint. Economically, we need to be able to take a lead economically if we, we want to make sure that we have the educated population, we have the, the technology, and we're able to implement it in a way that allows us to develop the next wave of technology. That, that has economic impacts for it. It also has a, a lot of impacts on what we're able to do in terms of setting norms and standards internationally. There's two components of that. One is the actual like, strict standards, the international bodies that are important. That's not as much what I'm, I'm talking about, though. But if if we don't get aggressive about what we're doing nationally, what we're doing federally, what we're doing um, in the private sector to have the next wave of technology, then uh, companies from other countries like China are going to develop operating systems that the world will use. Um, just a few years ago, uh, we were concerned about what happens if uh, China develops, you know, a Chinese company develops the next giant social media platform. and then they can use that as a way to collect data and influence dialogue across the entire world. That was a really short period of time when we started having that conversation, then TikTok came out. And everything that I just we were, we were just concerned about happened. We don't want that to become normal. And there's a very real possibility if we're not aggressive and we don't move on a timeline to around 2025, then that, that sort of thing will become normal, not just in social media, which is hazardous enough as well, but in operating systems for your phones. Uh, and, and 5G is a great example as well. 
So we want to make sure that we're pushing that level of technology. So not only is it that we're building it, but it's being built with our values. Thanks, Justin. I know we're up on the hour here. Uh, so maybe we'll get one final question. And uh, Ray had asked a question about general artificial intelligence. And I would guess that to some degree during the project, uh, the commissioners got a little bit annoyed with some of the, the general AI talk just because we're not there and, and kind of like looking back at like what Mike Kanan was talking about last year, he's like, why would we talk about general AI when we can't even like deploy run of the mill automation, you know, or, or we can't even, we don't even know how to use the proper terms to describe, you know, things in AI. So, um, but I, but I am curious, I think it's, it's an interesting question. It's probably one that a lot of people in the audience are wondering about just, just in general, uh, how did the prospect of general AI kind of um, surface in your work? And what are your thoughts on general AI relative to, to this? So that's actually a pretty controversial topic um, anywhere. I mean, our, our commissioners agreed unanimously to our recommendations. Um, so, it, you know, there, there wasn't too much controversy, but um, the future of AGI is, is something that's controversial across the field. Uh, it's feasibility, the time horizon for when it'll take place and, and then what it actually would look like in terms of AGI um, and then how expensive it'll be too. So, so some, some folks will, will tell you that AGI is going to look very, very different, um, not just in scale, but in underlying technology or software, not underlying technology, but the underlying uh, way that software works um, from what we're seeing today. Um, a version of AGI that's more savant-like in the sense that it can do a still relatively narrow thing, range of things, but with human-like capability at massive scale and speed. Um, that, that might happen uh, in a relatively short timeline, That's but it's just you know massive, massive versions of the models we have today. I don't, I don't wanna make that sound like it's simple, it's, it's not. So I, I think AGI is um, was, was still like, the future of AGI is still controversial because it you know, hasn't happened yet. But the, the thing that is not controversial is the idea that it's important and that it's important uh, for the government to uh, invest in AGI. And that it's important uh, that if, if and when AGI develops that it should develop in the United States. Courtney, thoughts on, on AGI? You know, I, I think I think Justin's exactly right. It, it has been um, a controversial topic with with our commissioners, and the you know the imperative is to really continue to to ensure that the the innovation base here is robust. So to to Justin's exact last point, that that when if it's developed, it's developed here. I I should add one thing. Sorry, I didn't think of it the first time. What wasn't a, like a really hot topic for for it was um, alignment problems. That, that wasn't, I mean, that, that's something that they're very familiar with, you know, the idea that AI, AGI is going to get like wildly out of control and take over or serve wildly different purposes. That, it, that AI in general can be abused is, of course, something that everyone's concerned about. But the, the kind of the classic um, things that you hear about AGI, people being worried about for AGI uh, was like that, that is not the, the hot topic uh, among people who are looking at it really closely. For sure. Saw. For sure. Um, We'll, we'll go just a little bit longer here, but not too much longer um, to be respectful of your time. And, and I'm grateful for all the questions coming in. Let me, let me pose one briefly to you. Um, given all the challenges, barriers, and obstacles uh, you've identified to broad and aggressive adoption of AI and a lot of the things we talked about tonight, nonetheless, are you concerned that people are still looking for technology silver bullets to solve people, process, and strategy shortfalls? Um, and I thought that was a, a great question to pose because um, so much of your work and report is is not just about the technology, right? Yeah, I can I can jump in, and then Justin can add add his you know amplifying thoughts as as you see fit. Um, you know, I, once again, I'll I'll address this from the the Department of Defense, and I think you know within the report, there the reason we make a variety of recommendations around um, organization. And, and structural reform and, and process reform is, is to really get at the fact that it's, it's not just, just about the technology, right? It's about creating the environment that, that can effectively leverage the technology and, and prioritize it in a way to really get after the core challenges um, for that organization. And so, no, we certainly don't see, see AI as a, a silver bullet to solve, solve any one agency's 
challenges, and it's certainly not going to solve all of the Department of Defense's challenges, right? But what it is, is it is a critical cross-cutting and an enabling technology that, that can really um, accelerate our ability to, to, to hold and maintain the competitive advantage, right? And so it's about getting to a place where we have the process, we have the structure, we have people in leadership positions that, that understand the opportunities, the threats presented by this technology and, and are able to weigh its application space appropriately um, in a way that that'll really give us that competitive edge. In, in terms of what we saw uh, you know, across the government in looking for civil, silver bullets, uh, that wasn't a huge issue that I saw. Um, or, or even a really significant one. Um, th there's certainly issues with people understanding what AI can and can't do, um, which, you know, there, there's a lot of saturation with ideas, you know, AI is going to do this in this time frame that, that just has, has not played out. Um, but uh, we, we didn't see a huge issue with that because uh, most of the leaders, even if they didn't know exactly what they needed, knew that there was gonna be some hard work and there was gonna be some, you know, building data infrastructure that they were gonna have to get the right people in uh, to, to actually create AI solutions. And it, it, there wasn't, um, even if someone said, I don't know exactly what to do, they always knew that they needed to do something to get to the solution at the end. Okay, well, that's that's good to hear. Um, I know we still have some unanswered questions from the group. I'm sorry for that. Uh, we, hopefully we can continue this, this dialogue uh, after tonight. Um, I'll pose a final question. Uh, you've given us a, a lot to think about, but um, to kind of close this out for the evening, what can, you know, the deaf community, the people listening to this, you know, here tonight, the podcast later, what can they do besides read the report, of course, <laughs> um, given that they're, you know, they're not the president or they're not Congress. Um, what would, what would you, what was your call to action uh, to them? Mike, I'm really glad you, you said to read the report. So I didn't have to, because that sounds terrible from the, the people who wrote it, but the, uh, <laughs> So I appreciate that. Um, so there's there's a few things that you can do. One is join communities of practice, both in and out of government. There's a really robust set of communities of practice uh, coming up in the services, coming up in the IC, coming up in inter interagency within places like GSA, you know the you know CIO Council, all sorts of places that are doing really great work. And uh, what they they need is to have more people, more perspectives, and have more uh, more involvement. Those those communities of practice are, are fantastic. Another part is, um, especially for those who are out of government, but in, in general, to speak to members of Congress about what you're seeing. If there's a part of the report that you like, that you're enthusiastic about, and you want to see implemented, um, as, as cliche as it sounds, contacting your member of Congress works. And we have had conversations with members of Congress that are very interested in moving legislation because they had some people call them, highlighted to their staff, and their staff brought it up to them. That it's it's actually pretty powerful, especially when you can make a coherent argument about why it's important um, and having an outside voice is helpful. And the, the third part about it is some of this is going to be moved into legislation. Um, and you'll, it'll be in the NDAA, it'll be in a variety of legislative vehicles, understanding what's in those, um, not just relying on summaries of the NDAA, um, and then taking that and saying, you know, and this is, this is the entrepreneurs in depth that I'm talking to mostly here, saying, this is in legislation now, that's why we need to do it. It's really powerful. There were two provisions that kind of got buried in last year's NDAA. One was uh, taking the uh, language, you know, pay for language program that DOD works, the defense language um, aptitude, or sorry, uh, proficiency test, and adding coding languages, programming languages to that. That didn't get a lot of notice. And then having self-guided education where the services need to provide a list of courses that are paid for uh, that uh, service members can take and will be tracked on their record brief um, they can take them for free and they need to be compensated for them. And those didn't get a lot of attention, but once they did, then people who are inside DOD or in the services could say, we need to do this. Here's, here's my legislative uh, whip to try and, and use uh, to get you to move. So use those, those things that Congress is writing and push your services forward um, appropriately to do it. Courtney. Yeah, I think I think that's an excellent summary. Um, the one thing I'll add too is that I, I think the deaf community is, is particularly well positioned to to help us play that that translation role, right? There are a lot of folks here who've spent time in government, 
outside the government, in private industry. And the more people who can help us, you know, do do that that translation and increase the permeability between between industry and government, right? Understand what needs to be done within agencies to work more closely with the private sector, understand being out in the private sector, um, what the what the incentives are and what the barriers and the challenges are of, of working with uh, with government agencies really gets us to to a point of partnership, I, I think, um, uh, in, a, in a more positive manner, you know, and the, and the other thing I would just I would highlight and emphasize based on what Justin said is certainly can't can't underestimate um, what can be done by by getting in touch with your individual members of Congress and really just just getting involved with with advocacy efforts on the Hill for this. You know, I think we're seeing incredible momentum in the past few years from from certain members and from the from the committees themselves on these issues. And as you know, Justin stated earlier in our conversation, we are there is this kind of trend of, of broader awareness in the American public of of these broader competition issues and the role AI will play in it. But more voices joining joining the course that's speaking to the Hill and continuing to keep our foot on the gas on these issues is, is really critical. So I think this, this community can play a, a really important role in helping us continue to carry that message and um, move forward. Well, thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Justin. Really interesting conversation. Thank you to our audience for, for joining. Uh, great questions. Uh, yeah, just really happy with the, the event. And uh, it's like Justin said, you know, you didn't just drop off the report and now you're going to go, uh, you know, take off to, to on vacation, that this is going to be a work in progress. Uh, we're going to have more conversations about this in the future. And so, uh, Ray, thank you for your service. We'll, we'll second that. Thank you for your service on this work. And uh, we look forward to seeing, you know, the implementation of your recommendations. And uh, uh, thanks again. Pass it over to Mike. You definitely do deserve a vacation, though, to be clear. Uh, <laughs> after that work. Uh, I'll echo Ray as well and, and the comments in the chat about um, obviously fantastic having you here tonight and a fantastic report. And thank you for um, not just for joining us, um, but for, you know, taking these these years um, of your of your life and your career and dedicating them to this, you know, ever important mission. Um, and thanks for ending tonight on a, on a really great action note uh, for us about what we can do besides reading the report. A um, lot of great takeaways, uh, you know, everything from AI adoption is 50% is culture change to, you know, that, that uh, bell you struck right at the beginning of who's gonna adopt more of these recommendations sooner, uh, the US or another country. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of sobering thoughts, a lot of inspiring thoughts, um, and uh, like Adam said, the, the conversation will definitely go on. Uh, so thank you for joining uh, us tonight. And we look forward to, to getting a chance to talk with you again in the future and to seeing the, uh, the recommendations implemented. Thanks for taking the time to listen. We love ideas and feedback. So feel free to send your thoughts to hello at deaf.org. For more great content and to stay in the loop about community events and activities, Follow us on social media and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Everyone plays a part in building the innovative national security culture we want to see. To find where you fit, just go to def.org slash join. That's def.org slash join.